You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. As always, it's a blessing to be here with you to worship the Lord and also get into the Word of God together. If you're new, if you're a visitor here, I just want to say we're very glad that you're here. Welcome. We're glad that you chose to worship with us this morning. We're excited. We're going to be starting a new series today that we're just calling Lent. Lent is celebrated by Christians and has been celebrated traditionally for, for many centuries as we look forward to and anticipate Good Friday when we celebrate Jesus's, I mean, remember, I should say, Jesus's death on the cross and also celebrate his resurrection. So 40 days before Easter Sunday, Christians for hundreds of years have been celebrating a time that we call Lent, where we remember what he went through leading up to his death and his resurrection. The way we'll be going through this series is today we'll be focusing on the Saturday before Jesus was crucified. The following Sunday, next week, we'll be looking at Palm Sunday. The week after that, we'll be looking at Monday. And our, and our aim is that we would, we would follow Christ, that we would see how he moves, how he interacts, that we might know him more and more, that we would study his character, but that we would attempt to study his character by, by trying to understand who he is, even emotionally. What does his emotional life reveal to us about who he is as he knows his time to die is soon coming? We want to walk with him through this week, through what we know as Holy Week. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 11. We'll, beginning our, we'll be beginning our time in this narrative in verse 45, if you have your Bible with you. But even before, you don't have to turn here. I want to read a verse from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, even before we get to John chapter 11, just to help us to understand why it is so important that we focus in on Jesus, who he is, and what he did. Hebrews 1, 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It says he is the radiance of his glory, that, that God shows off his glory and spreads off his glory through the person of Jesus, 100% God, but yet 100% man at the same time. He is the radiance of the glory of God. We want to know him. If we want to know who God is, we want to know who Jesus is. We need to look at Christ, the God-man. I don't know about you. I want to know Christ as fully as I possibly can. I don't want to settle for what this person says about who Jesus is. I don't want to settle for who, my, who a family member might say Jesus is, who TV might say who Jesus is. I don't want to settle for that. I want to know who he is. What was he like? What would it have been like to walk with him, to know him, to see how he responds to different situations? What would it have been like to know him in that way? One of the issues that we often have as followers of Jesus is sometimes we, we base our understanding of who Jesus is on what other people might tell us. And sometimes we base our understanding of who Jesus is based on who we want him to be, who we desire for him to be. Attributes and characteristics that we like in other people, we, we want to emphasize those things about Jesus and maybe minimize other aspects of who Jesus is. But we have to let him speak for himself. We have to let him speak for himself as he has revealed himself in his word. If not, we might tend to, to love to think about the fact that Jesus is kind, 
That, right, that Jesus is, is present, that he's with us, and we might gloss over the fact that sometimes Jesus is angry as well. And that's also a part of who he is. We need to be able to look at Jesus on all ends of the emotional spectrum and all of his complexities if we're going to know his glory as we ought to. If we're going to follow him, we need to know him. If we're going to find him trustworthy enough to worship and give our lives over to, we need to know who he is. We need to know what he is like. We need to know how he responds, how he feels about different things that occur. Today, we will begin the narrative examining who Jesus is as we journey with him to the cross just after he has raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, we're going to make our way back to that part of the Bible where he does raise him from the dead, but we're going to to jump in a little bit after that. This is an extremely pivotal part of Jesus' ministry. Many don't know this, but this act, raising Lazarus from the dead, is actually set off a, a chain of events that ultimately led to his death. We'll begin reading John chapter 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. At this time, the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, is semi-autonomous. They have some amount of leadership, but ultimately the Roman Empire is ruling over them and is leading them at this point. Rome was very careful to not let any leader, a religious leader, any type of leader, gain such a following that it would be a threat to Rome. So now you have the Jewish leaders, you have the Pharisees, you have the high priest who was there, excuse me, the chief priests who were there, and they're saying, what are we going to do about this Jesus? He performs all these signs. If we let him go on like this, and so many people believe in him, the Romans might take away our nation from him because they don't want this Jewish man to gain such a following that it's a threat to Rome. Now, here's the thing. They're asking, what are we going to do about Jesus? They're not asking, should we do something about Jesus? They're not asking, are we going to do something about Jesus? They're asking, what are we going to do about this Jesus. Let's pick up in verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you, pay attention to that word, nor nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Jump down to verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Jesus has been doing these many signs, and now he raises a man from the dead. And now the Jewish leaders are like, all right, we got to do something about Jesus. What are we going to do about him? And they ultimately decide, we got to kill him. We got to get rid of him. We have to kill Jesus, the the Jewish leaders are conspiring to commit murder. Jesus is aware of it all, so he starts to move a little bit differently. He knows that they're ready to kill him, so he's not spending as much time walking openly among the Jews, the passage said. But instead, he's in the the region near the wilderness, a a town called Ephraim. And he stays there with his disciples. As we're tracking and working our way through this narrative, the last week of Jesus' life before he's taken away to be crucified, you have to understand the tension is building from this point right here. The tension 
is building. Jesus is aware they're making plans to kill him. Verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Key verse right here, verse 57. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So the streets are buzzing in Jerusalem right now. It's the Passover. A lot of the Jews are moving to Jerusalem for the Passover, and they're asking questions. You think Jesus is going to come? The Pharisees are, are demanding that people, hey, if you see where Jesus is, you let us know because we're planning to arrest him. So the tension in the air is, is Jesus going to even show up? If he shows up, are they really going to arrest Jesus? They're not asking nicely, saying, hey, if you, if you see Jesus and you think about it, come let us know. No, that's not what they're doing. They're giving orders. If you see Jesus, let us know. We are going, coming to arrest him. That's their response to Jesus. That they want to get rid of him. More on that later. Let's continue on chapter 12. We're going to go verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was born, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of the ones reclining at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of all my burial, excuse me, for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus is talking about his burial because he's very clear and aware of his death. He's clear that the Jewish leaders are planning to kill him, probably even as they speak and have this dinner. This dinner is likely a celebration that Lazarus is now alive. Lazarus is there, Mary's there, Martha is there. These are Lazarus' sisters. Jesus had just raised him from the dead a few verses, or a, I should say the chapter before. And Mary comes to Jesus and comes to Jesus' feet. Now, Martha has just prepared something delicious, right? So they're at the table. They're eating something good. They're celebrating Lazarus being alive. Mary comes in with this, this ointment that would have been sold for about 300 denarii, according to Judas. Now, 300 denarii is about 10 or 11 months' wages at this time. This is a lot of money. This is something very expensive. That to, to use this and pour this out on Jesus would have been a substantial and a very significant sacrifice for her. This is her saying, Jesus, you're worth more than my possessions. You're worth more than my money. You're worth more than what this world has to offer me. I pour this out on your feet. And then with her body, with her hair, she wipes his feet. She responds to Jesus by worshiping and honoring him. She's giving her best to him and for him. She's showing that he is worth more than anything else that she has. His value is greater than any material possession. These are, very two, these are two very different responses to Jesus. If we contrast Mary's response with the response of the religious leaders at that time, two very different responses to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. 
The Pharisees and the chief priests, they want to kill Jesus, but Mary wants to honor him as a king and worship him. And then if we continue on, we see in verses 9 through 11 just how much the the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, how much they hated Jesus, how much they wanted to to get rid of Jesus and stop people from following him. Verse 9 through 11 read, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. They so hated the fact that so many people were following Jesus that they were saying, many people are following him because he raised Lazarus from the dead. Well, we need to kill Lazarus to stop this following of Jesus. They were ready to be done with Jesus and so many people following him. I'm going to take a bit of a closer look at the response of the Jewish leaders, and then we'll take a look at Mary's response as well. Throughout the series, we'll be focusing a lot on the way that we should see Jesus, how we should view him, and then how that leads us to live in response to knowing who he truly is. But I want to make sure we understand what the Pharisees are very aware of and the Jewish leaders are very aware of. He just raised a man from the dead. He just raised a man from the dead. On top of that, they talk about, they know about the many signs that he had done. They know all the different times that he has brought so much healing to different families, to so many different people, people who couldn't find healing anywhere else, who who were Jews now, who who were their people, are finding so much healing in Jesus, but yet they still say, hey, we need to get rid of this Jesus. Why wasn't their response, Jesus, continue to bring your life giving kingdom? You're doing so much good. How do we get behind you in what you're doing? That wasn't their response. Why was it not? They're the leaders of the Jewish nation. So many Jews have found healing in Jesus. So many families have been restored in so many different ways because of what Jesus is doing. But their response is, no, we got to get rid of Jesus. Why is this their response? Why do they respond this way instead of saying, no, Jesus, your rise to fame is actually good? I think one of the ways that we can see, one of the reasons that they responded that way is in verse 50 of chapter 11. The high priest is saying this to the Jewish Jewish leaders at this time. It's a verse we read a little bit earlier. He says, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. They were focusing on what they would lose with Jesus' rise to fame and with Jesus' following. This is what consumed them. The cost of Jesus being king Everything that they would lose in light of, it was consuming them. They loved their positions of authority. They loved their positions of influence. Jesus was rising to fame, and it was taking that away from them. They felt like it wasn't good for them for Jesus to to rise to fame and have this following that he has. At the same time, the nation... The the, the nation of Israel at this time likely would lose their status and their autonomy, so they would have even less influence because now they would not only lose some of their authority to Jesus, but also to Rome, who would likely come in and try to disband their nation. They would lose their influence, their, their power. They saw Jesus primarily as a threat. They saw Jesus primarily through the lens of what they will lose if Jesus rises. They saw him primarily at what, through the lens of what it would cost them. They don't care how much he's healing, how much good he's bringing to their land and to others as well. That's not on their minds. All they can see is what they are losing, what they are not getting. I believe as Christians, we do the same thing. 
I believe oftentimes when we think of Christ, when we think of following him, we focus more on what he calls us to to leave behind, what he calls us to turn away from, than we focus on all the good that we have in him. I think our tendency oftentimes is to naturally have in the forefront of our minds the things that he calls us to sacrifice, what we cannot do, and this distorts our view of Jesus. Because in our mind, we emphasize what he calls us away from, what he tells us that we shouldn't have or shouldn't do. So now our view of Jesus is unbalanced. Because as I like to say, when you follow Jesus, he always offers you more than he costs you. You always receive more from him than you sacrifice as a servant of him. The enemy would love for us to focus more on what we are losing than focus on what we gain in him. In the Garden of Eden, when the serpent tempts Adam and Eve, he does it partially by emphasizing what they won't have if they follow God. They won't have the knowledge of good and evil like God has. He tempts them by by hoping and helping them to see primarily what they don't have, and he leads them to rebel against God and turn away from God in search of what, of what they do, currently do not have, even though God is offering them more than he is costing them. He doesn't remind them of everything that God has so graciously given them. He focuses them in on the one tree. God has given them this entire garden with so much good. He's provided for them in so many ways. He doesn't, he doesn't want them to focus on all the good that God has given them, but says, hey, but he, why can't you eat from this tree? This one tree, his ability... To tempt them rests in their willingness to focus on what God says they can't have rather than celebrating and finding contentment in what they have in God. His ability to tempt them rests in that. Getting their eyes off the things that they should be finding contentment in in the Lord and getting their eyes on the things that they desire that they are instructed not to have and not to pursue. The enemy has our eyes fixed on the difficulty of everything that we are called to sacrifice that we really like. So we feel frustrated and we feel sad and at times we feel angry against God and we want to get rid of Jesus in certain areas of our lives. Jesus is costing us too much. We sound like the Pharisees. We focus in on what we cannot have. But Mary doesn't have that problem. Without looking at all the scriptures earlier, we do want to go into part of chapter 11. Jesus has this interaction with Mary that I believe helps us to see what Mary is able to see about Jesus, what, how Mary is able to see what she gains from having Jesus and following him. So to give you a little bit of backstory real quick, Jesus finds out that, that Lazarus is sick. Lazarus is Mary's brother. He chooses not to go and heal Lazarus. Instead, he allows Lazarus to die. Now, Jesus was a friend of Lazarus, of Mary, and of Martha as well. They were siblings. They knew him. They likely trusted him, but he didn't go and prevent their brother from dying, even though he definitely could have, and they knew that he could have. I want to point our attention to a conversation that he has with Mary before he goes and raises Lazarus from the dead. We're going to go back to chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 29 and work our way up to the part where he raises Lazarus. We're picking up in the story right after Mary hears that Jesus is calling for her. Verse 29. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her. 
supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary is in an incredibly difficult place. She's grieving the loss of her brother. She's talking to her friend who she has been following, who she knows also loves Lazarus, but but chose not to heal Lazarus. So she's grieving. She's obviously extremely disappointed. And now she runs to Jesus, who could have done something about it, but didn't. She's at his feet, weeping. Verse 32 says that she fell at his feet, weeping. Here's the question that I want to use to govern the rest of our time trying to answer this question. How does she go from being at his feet In chapter 11, in grief and tears, in confusion and disappointment, and then in the very next chapter, in chapter 12, she's at his feet pouring out the ointment and worshiping him. How does she move from being at his feet with the grief and the disappointment to being at his feet with worship and trust and following him? What what does she see? What happens that causes this change in her? How does she make this transition? Let's go to verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. So Jesus doesn't just see Mary. Mary comes and is weeping. Jesus Jesus notices that. Also, the other Jews that were with her come, and they're weeping as well. And it says, Jesus, he sees this. He saw her weeping. He saw the other Jews weeping. And it says that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The word, the Greek word here that's translated deeply moved, it's, it's probably a difficult word to, to translate. It's the same word that they would use to describe a, an animal that's snorting with anger. I don't know if you've ever seen a, an animal that's just angry. It's just, maybe you've done that before. Maybe you've seen someone who's real angry and they're just, they're, they're breathing now changes because they're angry. Jesus, when it's saying that he is deeply moved, it's not just simply saying that he's sad, but that that word has a level of anger hidden in it. We're saying Jesus is, Jesus is bothered by this. Jesus is indignant about this. Jesus is troubled by this. He's moved to anger, moved deeply in his spirit to anger when he sees his loved ones grieving. When he sees Mary grieving, when he sees Mary weeping, when he sees the Jews with her weeping. And it also says that he was greatly troubled. If you've ever been greatly troubled before. It's different from just being sad. One definition of the word troubled is to have your mental calm and peace disturbed. He was greatly bothered. He was greatly disturbed by the fact that Mary was weeping in this way, that she was experiencing such such grief, such sadness. Verse 34, he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him? I want to talk about Jesus' humanity for a second. Weeping is when the sadness that comes from the brokenness of this world, just in some ways, just even physically just takes over. It doesn't just say he shed a few tears. It says Jesus is weeping. To weep in front of a group of, of people, there's a, there's a sense of uh, an, an amount of vulnerability to be able to do that. 
It's when you, you're no longer holding back the sadness. It's when you're no longer trying to stuff it all down, but you're just letting it come out. So Jesus sees them mourning, sees them weeping, joins them in their mourning, joins them in their weeping. He has this, this anger. He, he's intolerant of this grief, but it also affects him to the point where he breaks down and begins to weep as well. He is broken by the brokenness that they feel. He is hurt by the hurt that they feel. He is pained by the pain that they are feeling. From the, from the passage, we see that Jesus weeps with Mary. She saw that his response to her hurt and her pain was hurt and pain for him. She saw that she wasn't alone in her pain, but that God himself, creator of heaven and of earth, hurt right along with her. She saw that he was compassionate and merciful. But she didn't just see that he was merciful. She also saw that he was mighty. Because after he wept, he went to the tomb and made it clear that he's more merciful, that he's more than just a merciful man, but he's also a mighty God. Jump down to verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved. Here's that phrase again. Then Jesus deeply moved. With that anger inside of him, he's fed up with this. He's intolerant of this. Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. To try to explain maybe where some of this anger in Jesus is coming from. Jesus, Paul says that Jesus is, is the creator, that all things were made by him, for him, and through him. So he's the creator of heaven and earth. He created everything good. Everything was right. Everything had peace and harmony and ran the way that it was supposed to. It was a place where people could thrive and flourish without death. And then mankind sinned against God. And now there's this curse of sin that is placed on the world where now we have suffering, we have pain, we have tears, we have weeping, where now we lose family members to death. We're now brothers and sisters and family members and friends and loved ones now grieve because of the curse of sin, and Jesus is intolerant of it. Jesus is fed up with this. Jesus is, he's weeping, but he's also deeply moved in his spirit. He weeps with Mary, and then he goes to the tomb of Lazarus, deeply moved again. So here Jesus stands. I want you to picture Jesus, picture his posture, the, the expression on his face. Here he stands face to face and toe to toe with his great enemy of death. Here he stands face to face and toe to toe with the curse of sin as he stands at this tomb, angry, ready to take the curse of sin and rip it apart in front of these people's very eyes. And here we have verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? Jesus' intolerance of the curse of sin is the reason he's about to put the glory of God on display for all who are in attendance. Verse 41, so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Jesus looks into the tomb. He looks death in the face. He looks a curse of sin in the face and says, Lazarus, come out. 
and immediately the, the, the cells, the tissue in Lazarus' body that had begun to decay at this point start reforming and becoming renewed at his word. The curse of sin is literally falling apart in front of these people's very eyes at the very word of Jesus. He says, Lazarus, come out. He's indignant. He's intolerant. He's fed up with all the brokenness in this world. And he says, no, no. I am here to take it away. A little bit earlier, we didn't get to get to this verse, but Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying who I am is the undoing of the curse of sin, is the undoing of all the brokenness in this world. This is what I have come to do. And this is what he does as Lazarus walks away from the tomb. I like to look at this miracle of Jesus as Jesus serving eviction papers to death that he's letting death know your day is coming, that you won't reign forever, that you won't be here forever. I'm coming to rid my world and my good creation of you and everything that you have done to my people. You got to understand, Jesus doesn't just come to heal a few people and preach, and preach a few good sermons. Jesus came to deal with and do away with sin and the curse of sin forever for all of his people. This is his purpose. This is his mission. This is what he does at this tomb of Lazarus. And at this miracle, he puts death on notice. He, tells, he lets death know your reign is coming to an end. He puts grief on notice. He lets grief know your reign is coming to an end. He puts suffering on notice. He lets suffering know your reign is coming to an end. He puts sin on notice. He lets sin know your reign is coming to an end. I am here and I am the resurrection and I am the life. Because the kingdom of God is at hand and the king of kings is intolerant of all that sin has done to his, his good creation. He's come to restore it to the way that it is intended to be. So what caused Mary to make this transition from being at the feet of Jesus, disappointed, grieving, and sad, to being at the feet of Jesus, pouring out her ointment on him and worshiping him? What causes this transition, that what leads her to respond with worship while the religious leaders were wanting to get rid of Jesus? How does she go from weeping tears of disappointment to worshiping him? She saw that Jesus was caring and compassionate and merciful enough to weep with her in her pain, that he was present and near enough to, to, to feel her, her weeping and her grief. But not only did she see that, she, that he was there with her in her grief, but that he has the power to make her grief only temporary that he has the power to take her grief away and wipe every tear from her eyes. She, she saw Jesus merciful and mighty. She saw that he was exactly what she needs. Not only was he good to her in the present time by showing her that, that he was heartbroken by her grief, but he also showed that he's even better to her in her future because she, he is the one that ensures that her grief is only but for a moment. I want to proclaim to you today, Jesus, compassionate and omnipotent, merciful and mighty. I want to proclaim to you the one who is present with you today, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus, who is present with you today in your pain, in your difficulty, in tribulation, in trial, in all of your suffering, and in all of your grief. I want to proclaim to you today the Jesus that is present there with you, but also just like Mary, who can also say, and I'm going to make sure that your pain and your grief and your suffering and your tears and your weeping are all temporary because I'm coming back to take it all away. I'm coming back to take it all away. And the truth is what we get in Jesus is better than what Mary got. 
Because in, at some point in time, Lazarus died again and his family grieved him again. But Jesus is saying, no, I'm coming back for you and I'll take your grief and your death away forever. He is Jesus, merciful and mighty. We need to see him sad. We need to see the tears on his face. We need to see him grieving. In your times of tears, in your times of sadness, in your times of grief because of what sin has done to this world, you need to be able to see his weeping face, but you also need to see him high and exalted and on his throne reigning over sin and reigning over death, knowing that he will also take it away, that he will rid us of it all. We can't just see him as sad and weeping. We need to see him as mighty and victorious as well. I want us to see not just the tears of sadness on his face, but I need us to see the indignation on his face. I need us to see the anger that he's intolerant with sin and all of its effects, and he is going to make everything right. You need to know this Jesus. You need to know him. You need to see how intolerant he is, how he is actively working to make all things right. We need to know him as he is. Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, where he wipes away Mary's grief when he says, Lazarus, come out. And we need to know that one day we're going to stand before him. And he's going to also say with a loud voice, behold, I am making all things new. And just like he wiped away Mary's grief, he's going to wipe away our grief as well. As he wipes every tear from our eyes. Praise God that we serve a God who is merciful and a God who is mighty. This is what Mary saw of him, and this is what leads Mary to worshiping him. Let us not be like the Pharisees who focus primarily on what he calls us to sacrifice or what we might lose because he reigns and because he has this following that he has. Let's look at Psalm 103, verse 2, as we close today. Psalm 103, verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. May we not forget his benefits. May we not be overly distracted by what we, what we might lose, what we have to sacrifice. And sometimes the sacrifice will be great, but the reward will always be greater. Let us not forget the reward in the time of sacrifice. Let us not forget what we, what we receive from him, what we always have in him every day in this life and all of eternity in the next life. Let us not forget Jesus, merciful and mighty. Forget not his infinite compassion for you. Forget not his infinite power to save you from sin and from death. And if we're going to worship and trust him as he calls us to, we must intentionally remember his goodness. Set our minds on his goodness. Know him as he truly and as he actually is. One of the things that we do every week just to help us forget not his benefits and forget not all the ways that he blesses us is we partake in communion together as a family. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, that we might remember his sacrifice, that we will not primarily consider our faith through the lens of seeing our sacrifice, but that we would first look at his sacrifice and remember what he has done, that we might remember how good he is to us. Today, as we approach the communion table together, let's forget not all his benefits. Let's try to remind ourselves of all the ways that he has blessed us, all the grace that he has lavished on us, all the love that he has lavished on us. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're not a member of our church, we would still love for you to approach the communion table with us when we open up the table for communion in just a moment. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this is one of the few things we would ask that you not participate in as this is something he has set up in a very sacred way for his people, for those who do follow him.